We're going to be in Mark chapter 13 this morning. Mark chapter 13, so you can go ahead and be turning there in your Bibles. If you need a Bible, there are a few on the back table there. You're welcome to grab one. Keep it if you would like to do that. Anytime you're reading any work of literature, including a book of the Bible, there are always going to be some parts that are harder to understand than others. And inevitably, there will be one, one passage, one part of every work of literature that's the hardest to understand. Scholars don't agree about much in Mark 13, but they pretty much all agree it's the most difficult chapter in the Gospel of Mark to understand. If you've been with us for a while, <clears throat> you know we've been working our way through Mark, and we've been in the temple for the last several weeks. Jesus entered into Jerusalem. He took his followers, his disciples there, and he went into the temple and then starts picking fights. And there's one conflict after another, all, all focused around this conflict between Jesus and the religious establishment and his continued implications that their authority, their power, their control over the sort of central life of God's people is about to come to an end. And so at the beginning of chapter 13, he compounds all of that conflict with an explicit prediction that the temple itself will be destroyed. He says not one stone in the entire temple complex will be left standing on top of the other. And his disciples later ask him, when's that going to happen? And he gives this long and winding and somewhat bizarre monologue as an answer that at times seems like he's answering their question, but at times it seems like he's talking about something completely different. Indeed, it seems at times like he's talking about the end times, his return at the end of all things. This seemingly back and forth nature of this response has led to four general views of what's going on in this passage. So view number one arose in the 19th and 20th century when, when scholars started to read the Bible uh, with the assumption that it was like any other book full of errors. And so they would say things like, well, the reason it seems like on the one hand Jesus is talking about the end times and on the other hand it seems like he's talking about something immediate is because Jesus thought the end times were immediate and he was just wrong. Uh, we don't believe that Jesus can be wrong. We believe he's the word of God in human flesh. We believe the Bible is his word. It's true and it uh, is without error. So we can toss out view number one. The second view is that this chapter is exclusively or almost exclusively about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple and the surrounding events. This occurred historically in the year 70 AD. And according to this view, Jesus is answering their question about the temple with a lot of sort of rhetorical flourish. Uh, he's using what people call apocalyptic language, which isn't necessarily meant to describe something in the future, but meant to describe something now or in the immediate future with really fantastic uh, language that's really meant to, to evoke a lot of uh, response. The third view is that this passage is exclusively or almost exclusively about the last things. The, the word in Christian theology for the study of last things is eschatology. It's a big word. It doesn't matter that you remember the word, but the idea is important. So, so there's a, an eschatological interpretation of this text that for whatever reason, Jesus is asked about the destruction of the temple and he gives an answer about the end times. And the fourth and final view is that it's both and. It's not temple destruction or end times. It's both. It's some combination. And in fact, the Bible does give us a precedent for this kind of answer. Lots of places in the prophets, the Old Testament, you see the prophets making these predictions, these prophecies that have an immediate partial fulfillment in history, but have a future full fulfillment in Christ. Uh, in other places, the prophets give, uh, again, a sort of apocalyptic or, or uh, eschatological language that's meant to describe and expose patterns and rhythms in the world that are true now and basically will continue to be true 
throughout history. So maybe Jesus is saying something like, this is the way things are going to be when the temple is destroyed, and they'll continue to be that way until the end. I'll go ahead and tell you up front that I I take the fourth view. I think this is both and. Uh, In particular, I think verses 1 through 31 are primarily about the destruction of the temple, and verses 32 through 37 are primarily about the last things and Christ's return. And in fact, that Christ tells us in the very last verse that all the things that he described in verses 1 through 31, he wasn't just saying to the disciples, but he's saying to everybody. So there's a a repetitive nature of these events. Uh, Here's the key for my interpretation, I believe that the, the end times begins at the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus is the beginning of the end. If you want to know when the end times will be, the answer, in my view, is now. You're living in them. And we've been living in them for 2,000 years. Uh, the end times begin with the death, resurrection, and, and uh, ascension of Jesus. He inaugurated the end then, and he will bring it to completion when he comes back. Now that immediately gets us into discussions about different views on the end times. And you're probably in one of three categories here. One, you might be very confident in your view on these things. Maybe you've been to church for a long time. Maybe you've been in a church that really emphasized this and you think, I know how this is going to go. I know the places and the names and the events. I know the order, the sequence. I'm very confident about this. Others of you perhaps been in church for a while and you've been around some confident people Uh, But talking to them has only left you confused. And you think, maybe I'm supposed to know about this. I'm supposed to care about this. It seems important, but frankly, I have no idea about this. And so you're you're confused. And then there's a third group. Uh, Maybe you're newer to church or newer to this concept, and you're just completely bewildered by the entire beginning of this sermon. I don't normally give such a long preface, uh, but here's where I want to land this preface leading into today's text. First, this chapter in Mark is a great reminder that Christians can have a great deal of unity on the most important things, even when we disagree about some particulars of biblical interpretation. Regardless of your your take on the last things or the end times, all Christians agree on the most essential element of eschatology, which is that Jesus Christ is going to return to judge the living and the dead and to bring his kingdom in which he will reign forever and ever world without end. And that reality, which is the central point of our theology of the last things, leads us to live in certain ways. And that is what Mark 13 is about. If you leave this morning after hearing the sermon and and, and you leave thinking, I really want to dig more into prophecy charts and the role of different countries and people and figures in in Armageddon, the last battle and things like this, I, I think maybe you've missed the point of the passage. I don't think the point here is to promote prophetic speculation, but to inspire a particular way of life. Christians believe a story. We believe a grand narrative about Jesus Christ. And this chapter and others tell us the last chapter, that he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And that last chapter of our story gives meaning to all the other chapters. We have meaning and purpose in this life now because we know what's coming next. This passage isn't about huddling up and preparing for Armageddon. It's about how you can have meaning and purpose in your lives today in light of what Jesus has revealed is the end of the story. And that's good news because we are in desperate need of meaning and purpose in our lives. The the main stories on offer in our world do not give us a final chapter that compels us to live with meaning and purpose. 
In fact, they, they, if they do give us a final chapter, it just leads us to despair or despondency. But the Christian story is so much better. And that, I hope, is the main thing that you'll get today from Mark chapter 13. Turn there with me if you haven't. I'm going to read the entire chapter, so whatever you need to do to um, get your body in position to, to bear through a long reading. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus told them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you'll be flogged in the synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you'll say, but say whatever is given to you at the time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter. For those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here's the Messiah... See there, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I've told you everything in advance. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels And gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight, or at the crowing of the rooster, or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone. Be alert. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. 
Jesus and his disciples finally exit the temple. One of them comments on the size and beauty and glory of the impressive buildings in the temple complex, and Jesus responds, yeah, it's coming down, the whole thing. Uh, He's been making predictions about the end of sort of the religious life and ceremony around the temple, and now he says the temple itself is going to be destroyed, and a few of his disciples understandably follow up later. They ask, when is it going to come down? And presumably, at the beginning, Jesus is answering their question, but by the time we get to the end, verses 32 through 37, he's talking about that day of which no one knows the time or the hour. He's talking about being alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming. Seemingly, he's talking about his return. I I believe, as I mentioned, that, that the reason for this progression is that the end times begin with the death and resurrection of Jesus and culminate in his return. And the key to that view, in my view, lies in verses 24 through 27. So Jesus has been describing things that will happen associated with the temple destruction. He says you're going to be arrested, you're going to be brought before courts and rulers, that's in verse 11, and that happens all throughout the book of Acts. He he refers to the abomination of desolation in verse 14, presumably that's about Rome destroying the temple itself. And then he he tells them to flee to Judea, verse 15, and and run for the hills. So all of this seems related directly to the events surrounding the destruction of the temple. And then in verses 24 through 27, Jesus says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will be falling from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you probably hear that, and you might think that's the easiest part of this passage to interpret. I know right there Jesus is talking about the end times. The sun and the moon are falling out of the sky. Uh, the, like the Son of Man is coming on the clouds. Jesus is coming back. This is, this is the easiest part. What if we have traditionally misunderstood these four verses? In verses 24 through 25, Jesus is using language that's typical of the Old Testament prophets. Almost everywhere in the prophets that they use this kind of language about the sun and the moon and the stars, it's not about the end of the world. It's about the end of a particular nation's reign. It's about a change in political power. So it's used in the Old Testament to refer to the end of Babylon or the end of Assyria. As R.T. France puts it in his commentary on Mark, such cosmic language conveys a powerful symbolism of political changes within world history and is not naturally to be understood of a literal collapse of the universe at the end of the world. God, he says, is redrawing the map of world politics. But here's what's different about Mark than the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, this language is always uh, always applied to Israel's enemies. It's applied to nations that are oppressing Israel. But in Mark, it's applied to Jerusalem. In Mark, it's applied to the temple itself. Jesus is saying there's a drastic change coming. There's a regime change. The temple used to be the central point of the life of my people, and it's no longer going to be that. That era is going away. But of course, great political change like this doesn't just occur in a vacuum, right? Whenever an old leader, an old system goes away, a new one rises to power. So what's replacing the temple? Jesus says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Jesus is quoting Daniel chapter 7. And in that chapter, Daniel, the prophet, sees a vision of something that he calls the Ancient of Days, which is meant to be God himself. And he says uh, in, in Daniel 7, he says, I saw one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds. But then he says, the Son of Man approached the Ancient of Days. 
In other words, in Daniel, the, the coming of the Son of Man isn't coming down from heaven to earth. It's coming up from earth to heaven. The vision of the Son of Man is he's, he's ascending into heaven and approaching God. Jesus here is not talking, in my view, about his second coming. He's talking about his ascension. He's talking about being exalted to the right hand of God the Father. He's talking about what Paul describes in Ephesians 1, that God has seated Christ at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion. And from there, Christ is sending out his angels to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. This isn't about the gathering up of God's people at the end of time. It's about the gospel going out and awakening the hearts of the elect through the preaching of God's people. In other words, Jesus is saying the destruction of the temple is the sign of a regime change. No longer is the capital of God's kingdom in Jerusalem. From now forward, it's in me at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And that shift is the beginning of the end. That shift began at the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. The temple destruction in 70 AD was a sign of it. And we live that era that began at that point. We have lived in that era for the last 2,000 years. And what does that mean? Uh, it doesn't mean that the return of Christ is tomorrow, although it could be. It does mean that the return of Christ is next. It's next on God's agenda. Between now and then, in my reading of this passage, things will continue to play out as they've been playing out. And that reality informs how we live in really important ways. Knowing what comes next informs the way we live now. I think that's what Jesus is saying in verses 33 and following. He says, watch, be alert. You don't know when the time's coming. You don't want to be caught unprepared. You don't want me to come back and find you sleeping. So be alert. Jesus summarizes the overall attitude, the overall posture of God's people during this in-between time between his first and second coming with one word, and it is the word watch. Christians are to be watchful. Watchfulness ought to characterize the church. What does that mean? Well, first, what does it not mean? In, in the first half of the 1900s, there was a popular American pastor named William Bell Riley. He was an author. He wrote a bunch of stuff. Uh, and he wrote a lot about the end times in relation to the two world wars. Uh, he wrote in a pamphlet around the, the beginning of World War II that he had discern, discerned from Scripture that 200 million people would fight in the final battle, Armageddon, between the armies of Christ and the armies of Satan. And he said, I'm watching the newspapers very closely to keep account on how many men are deployed into World War II. And he said, if we get near that 200 million number, we'll have no choice but to recognize that this is it. This is the great final battle. That's not what Jesus means by watchfulness. Uh, in fact, this passage specifically moves us away from that. Jesus gives some signs about the beginning of the end times, but then he says, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son. Now, whatever that statement means, which we're not going to get into today, at the very least, it means that if, if the Son doesn't know, then we don't know. So we don't need to be speculating. Jesus isn't calling us to prophetic speculation, nor is he calling us to be preppers. Uh, do you know what a prepper is? I did some reading this week. Preppers are very evangelistic, I learned. 
One website said a prepper is someone who has the wisdom and insight to look to the future and prepare for possible events that may impact his or her life. These people build knowledge and skills, gather supplies, and join together in communities that work together for the benefit of all. So basically, people who plan and prepare for potentially catastrophic events, stockpiling supplies, training, things like that. This article gave 14 reasons why you should become a prepper. Uh, <laughs> These included things like prepping brings peace. Prepping may make the difference between life and death. Preppers have what they need. Preppers are wise. Uh, just autobiographically, I just if you know my skill set at all, you know if something catastrophic happens, I'm going to be one of the first people to die. So <laughs> I'm just not going to spend my time on that. But I was talking to, to Justin and, and John this week uh, about this passage, and John said, Jesus isn't saying to be a prepper, but he is saying to be a spiritual prepper. And I think that's exactly right. Look, if you, truly, if you, if you feel compelled to prepare for things that could go on in our world, it's crazy out there. So no judgment, that's fine. But the, primarily the watchfulness that Jesus calls us to isn't a watchfulness to world events, as if we could somehow be prepared to face the cataclysmic events at the end of all time. He's, he's calling us, rather, to be watchful to him. Watchfulness is being spiritually attuned to Christ, fixing our gaze on him, on his life and death and resurrection and ascension and future return. Jesus wants us to push past all the distractions that are fighting for the attention and affection of our hearts and minds and be attentive to him and live accordingly. So what does that look like? What does it look like to be a spiritual prepper? Uh, here are four things from the text that I think make up that kind of watchfulness that Jesus is talking about. First, deception-proof intimacy with Jesus. Deception-proof intimacy with Jesus. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus said, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. And in verses 21 through 23, he basically says the same thing. False messiahs, false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to try and lead you astray. When I was little, Sometimes my sister and I were with my mom, and my dad would call her. We would pick up her phone and answer it and try to pretend that we were my mom. So I might talk in a high-pitched voice, or we might use really grown-up vocabulary or something like that to see if we could trick my dad. Of course, when you're a kid, like, dad will play along for a second, right? But he's ne he was never once fooled into actually thinking he was talking to his wife. Why? The relationship between a husband and a wife is the most intimate human relationship. My dad knows my mom's voice. And he knew when it was his child talking to him instead of his wife. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, my sheep know my voice. Do we know the voice of Jesus? There are so many voices in our day, so many people, many even claiming the name of Christ in his church, who make spiritual and moral and theological claims that are just flat contrary to what the scriptures teach and to what the church has believed for 2,000 years. And that's not new. That's been going on since the ascension of Christ. The New Testament talks about it everywhere. But some of these voices are compelling. They're attractive. They're persuasive. And we may be left wondering, how can I know the difference between these voices and the voice of Christ? The answer is pursuing intimacy with Jesus. That's how we come to recognize his voice. How do we do that? We do it through prayer. We do it by reading scripture. Perhaps most importantly, we do it through prayer that grows out of Scripture. Praying the Bible is praying Christ's words back to him, right? 
It's coming to the word of the Father written through the Spirit about the Son, and it's praying those words back to God, praying, make these things true of me, shape me in this way, praying God's word, meditating on it, studying it, memorizing it. These things help us be intimate with Christ. And and we can become more intimate with Christ through his church. The church is the body of Jesus Christ on earth. You cannot be intimate with Christ unless you're intimate with the local church. That is an offensive statement to a lot of people, but it's true. Christ is the head of the church. The church is his body. If you cut yourself off from the body, you're amputating yourself from the, from the people of God, the people of Christ, and thus from Christ. That's not to say there's never a, a season where somebody might not be a part of a church, but it is to say like you need to get to one as quickly as possible. Christ is the head of his church. The church is his body. If you're engaging Serving and being served by others in the church, submitting to one another, learning from other Christ-following, spirit-filled people, that's going to help you recognize the voice of Christ. Second mark of watchfulness is spirit-empowered gospel proclamation. Verses 9 through 11, Jesus says three things. One, you're going to take the gospel to places you wouldn't believe. Two, you're going to suffer. And three, the Holy Spirit is going to be with you. First, you're going to take the gospel to places you wouldn't believe. Verse 10, the gospel is going to be preached to all nations. Started this this little thing in Israel, and it's going to go to every nation on earth. Verse 9, you're going to witness to me in front of governors and kings. The proclamation of the gospel, in other words, is going to meet with great success. And it's going to meet with great resistance. You're going to be flogged, he says. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be handed over. These two realities have coexisted since the beginning of the church, and they coexist today. Great success and great resistance. Guys, I know that it can be intimidating to share the gospel with unbelieving friends and family members and neighbors. I know it can be intimidating, scary to invite somebody to church, to invite somebody to read the Bible together. Uh, You may be afraid of relational loss or awkwardness. But people have been risking their literal skin for 2,000 years to take the gospel to people who have never heard it. And they have counted it a joyful privilege to share in Christ's sufferings in the process. I don't say that to minimize your fears. I share them. But really, like, are we going to let the fear of relational awkwardness keep us from doing the most important thing that the church is called to do besides worshiping God? We can do this. We can share the gospel. We can invite neighbors to read God's word in scripture. I know we can, and here's how I know we can, because the third thing Jesus says is we have the Holy Spirit. He says, don't worry beforehand what you're going to say. Say whatever's given to you at that time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. If you're like me, you have friends or family members who you've wanted to share the gospel with, and you've played out conversations in your head so many times that you've just talked yourself out of ever having the conversation. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be thoughtful about it, but it seems like Jesus says that kind of playing out conversations is not helpful. Like, just just do it, and the Spirit is going to give you the words to say. And the reality is, we, we may not know until we're, like, looking back on the fact how the Spirit was there giving us the words to say. You may feel like, I don't know, I don't think the Spirit's going to help me in this. Well, you may not know until you try, until the moment. 
Jesus says, trust the Spirit. He'll give you the words to say. Lydia, our two-and-a-half-year-old, is in a phase where she's very motherly to Everett, our five-month-old. If you've served in childcare recently, you probably realize that. Uh, and often he'll start crying at home, and Lindsay or I may have our hands full for the moment, and she'll just rush over to him and give him his passy back, and she'll say something like, it's okay, uh, don't you worry, your big sister's here. <laughs> Jesus is saying to us, I know you're afraid, I know you're scared, don't you worry. The Holy Spirit is there with you. He's going to give you the words to say. Deception-proof intimacy with Jesus. Spirit-empowered gospel proclamation. And third, perseverance through suffering. Jesus describes great tribulation and suffering in verses 12 through 20. He says his people must persevere through them. How are we doing with perseverance? I'm looking around more broadly at the church in America, in the West, uh, and I've just got to say, like, I don't think we're doing that great with perseverance. Perseverance requires patience, and we are an impatient society. Perseverance takes a long vision. We tend to be nearsighted. Perseverance takes endurance. We want immediate results. It requires pain, and we are obsessed with comfort, and it shows. Like, how many people do you know who four, five, six years ago seemed to be walking well with Christ? And you look now, and they're totally disconnected. Either, either they're professing some sort of Christianity that's not recognizable to 2,000 years of church history, or they're not professing Christ at all, or they've totally disengaged from the church. And if we're not intentional about it, we will drift. You don't float toward perseverance. Uh, what's something that requires a lot of perseverance? Running a marathon. Have you ever talked to anybody, said, like, how was your weekend? They're like, good, I, I just accidentally ran a marathon yesterday. Like, I found myself like Forrest Gump running, and I'd run a marathon. Of course not. You have to train. You have to build perseverance. This is true for us. We have to train if we're going to persevere. But we do so with hope, and this is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. We are called to persevere, and we are promised that God will preserve us, that God will keep us. The Bible calls us to persevere in faith to the end and even says that if we fall away, it's because we were never truly born again. We were never truly saved in the first place. And yet it turns right back around and says, the God in whom you believe will preserve you. Verse 20, God cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. God will keep his elect. We will persevere because he will preserve us. Fourth and final mark of watchfulness is total devotion to God. This is actually a sneak peek into next week's text, but chapter 14, <clears throat> verses 3 and following. A woman comes with an alabaster jar, very expensive perfume, and pure nard. I don't know what that is. I'll have to look that up this week. She, she broke the jar, and she poured it on his head, and this made some disciples mad. They thought it was wasteful. Uh, they scolded her, and Jesus scolded them. And he said, leave her alone. She's done a noble thing for me. She's done what she could. This lady, right after this section, pours out a very expensive perfume on Jesus, which should be reminiscent, right, of another lady right before this section who poured out her entire livelihood with two small coins given the temple treasury. Both of them modeled the same vision of discipleship, total devotion to God. What does it mean to be watchful? Does it mean to be attentive and attuned to the reality of the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and future return of Jesus? It means to devote your life entirely to him. How could we do otherwise? Having seen the beauty and the glory of Christ, 
having seen his self-sacrificial love, his substitutionary death on the cross, how could we not give our entire life to him? We fritter our lives away, as C.S. Lewis said, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. But we can imagine what's meant by an offer of the holiday at the sea. We've been there. We've seen Christ. So let's not turn back to making mud pies now. Let's look at him again. Let's listen to him. He's telling us how the story ends. Let's live accordingly. Now, why is this good news? Why should we care about this? The Christian story and its final chapter that we've been talking about radically critiques the stories of our day. It, it radically critiques the stories of our day. Most people in our day live according to what we could call the story of secularism. Uh, what is secularism? I don't mean like total anti-God atheism, that's not necessarily what I mean, but secularism is just life lived within what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. Now, imminence is opposed to transcendence. Transcendence is everything that's up there, that's out and about, that's beyond the supernatural world. Imminence is everything that you can see and touch and feel and taste and hear. It's everything that's right here and now. So the, the framework of secularism only makes room for these things that are right in front of us. So when we try to tell that story, we have to do so from within that frame. So where did the world come from? Well, you can only point to natural causes. You have to say it came about naturally. It happened by chance. It just came into existence from nothing. In other words, the, the first chapter of the secular story is total meaninglessness. There's no purpose or meaning to something that comes into existence by chance. What about the final chapter? Jesus tells us where the world's heading according to the Christian story. What about the secular story? The world's heading back to where it came from. It came from nothing. It's headed to nothing. It's going to just dissolve into oblivion. Our sun's going to burn out. All the other stars are going to burn out. And nobody is ever going to remember anything that you said or did. And in the end, nothing is going to matter. In other words, the last chapter of the story is meaninglessness. And yet, the secular people that I know still try to live a meaningful life. Of course they do. Like, we're hardwired to search for meaning. In other words, the, the secular story basically says you came from meaninglessness, you're headed for meaninglessness, therefore live a meaningful life. That does not compute. As Tim Keller and others have put it, if a, a person within this secular story wants the experience of a meaningful life, they actually have to think less about what they believe is true. If they want to experience meaning, they have to ignore and suppress what they think is true. On the other hand, if a Christian wants to experience meaning and purpose in life, we get to think more about what we believe is true. We need to press into what we believe is true, and that's what gives us meaning. Do you want a meaningful life? Jesus and the Christian story can give it to you. In the end, it's not all just heading for meaningless oblivion. In the end, it's headed for ultimate meaning, and you can get in on that by giving your life to Jesus. And church, are we living according to what we believe? Are we letting our ultimate defining truth, the final chapter of the Christian story, inform how we live, or are we just floating along meaninglessly? Meaningless, yes, that was right, meaninglessly, like everyone else. Are we pursuing deception-proof intimacy with Jesus, or are we drifting? Are we leaving ourselves open to being deceived by other voices? 
Are we preaching the gospel to others in the power of the Spirit? I don't just mean me. I mean each of us. As if it's the most important thing. Are we letting fear of other people detract us from what Christ said is our mission? Are we prayerfully persevering through the difficulties and suffering and trials in our lives? Or are we just ready to tap out at the first sign of trouble? Are we totally devoted to God? Are we pouring out our lives like the two women who bookend this chapter to God? That is the most meaningful life imaginable. And it is ours. It's been given to us by God through Christ if we will just live into it.